Hello, hello. This is Alicia Young, and welcome to Teach Me Freedom. This podcast is about learning how to live a freer life from authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Those who have done it and who teach others how to do it as well, and what it feels like while applying those methods to our lives along the way. Every episode will deliver resources, anecdotes, and or reviews to support you in living a more freedom-filled life. Let's jump in. Please note the video version of this episode is available on YouTube at Teach Me Freedom. The link is also mentioned in the show notes. Enjoy. Welcome, Freedom Finders, to part two of the interview with my financial planner, Trevor Chu. We last left off where Trevor was discussing some of the top common mistakes he's noticed people making when it comes to developing financial strength. Let's carry on where we last left off. Um, any other questions about CPP? Not about CPP. I have a question about RRSP. Please forgive my ignorance here. I mix I mix things up sometimes. I'm mixing up RRSP and CPP right in this moment. Um, the reason for that is because when I've been reading different things about uh, about personal finance, oftentimes it will say like your employer making a contribution towards your pension. But I've only worked one job where an employer has contributed to my pension that I'm aware of. Can you please clarify the difference between R, the RRSP and CPP? Okay. And, and then I'll ask you my question after that clarification. <laughs> So, so Canada Pension Plan is usually if you're employed, it's mandatory. You have to contribute into it and it's based on your earnings. So it's it's roughly, you know, just under 10%. You pay half if you're employed. And then when you retire, you get this pension for the rest of your life based on your income. RRSPs are not mandatory. They're optional. And, that's, and here's a common mistake a lot of people make. They buy too much RRSPs. I see this a lot in my practice. And this is the primary reason why I work with a lot of accounting firms. You have a lot of professionals who've been encouraged to buy all these RSPs. And what end up happening sometimes is they don't need the money. They have too much money saved in RSP. They don't need it. They don't want it. And what a lot of people don't realize is when you pass away, if you leave an RSP or a RIF to an adult child, it becomes fully taxable as income. And CRA will likely take half of it. Oh my so gosh. Just think is buying too much RSPs that you're not going to spend in your lifetime. Only buy the amount of RSPs that you're going to spend in your lifetime. The times that RSPs make the most sense is one, if your employer offers to match your contribution, it's free money. Take it. Group RSPs are not vested, meaning as soon as the employer puts money in there, it's yours. You can take it and use it. Um, two, if you're going to use RSPs as a first-time home buyer plan, or you're going to go back to school full time. You can access RSPs as a long life uh, learning plan as well. Um, a lot of people don't realize this. First time home buyers, you're allowed to borrow up to $35,000 each from your RSP to use as a payment for your first home. So um, $70,000 per couple. But most people for, who are first time home buyers, they don't have $35,000 in RSPs. RSPs, uh, you're not allowed to put a lien against an RSP. So for that reason, you could actually take a line of credit, an RSP loan, put it into an RSP, wait 90 days, turn around and use it as your down payment. So a couple can create $70,000 of down payment out of nothing in 90 days. Now, it doesn't work for everybody. You, you got to have a really good cash flow and little to no debt for it to work, right? Um, so there's a process to that. But, but stuff like that is available. Um, 
RSPs eventually turn into RIFs, so Registered Retirement Income Fund. So at age 71, the government will force you to withdraw from an RRSP when it's automatically converted to a RIF. And they have a withdrawal schedule each year starting the first year. So at age 71, average rate is about just under 7%. And each year it increases. So, so this could be another issue because we work with accounting firms. And, and the issue is a lot of these professionals or people who have these RIFs, they don't want the income. They want to leave it to their um, grandchildren or children. But the issue is if they do that, CRA will take half of it. So we have guaranteed strategies we use with accounting firms that allow them to transform that taxable RSP into a tax-free benefit guaranteed. Um, so besides RSPs, you have your pension plans at work that your employer um, sets up for you. Though they are getting rare and rare with employers, what it essentially is, it's a locked-in RSP. So all it stipulates is you can't touch the RSP until you retire. And when you retire, because it's a pension plan, it's supposed to last the rest of your lifetime, there's a maximum ceiling of how much you can withdraw each year. So that's basically the difference between a, um, a registered pension plan at work and an RSP. Okay, yes. Thank you for clarifying that in such depth because it's, for some reason, I think because they're both associated with retirement, I commonly get them mixed up. There's and a lot of acronyms that, that <laughs> again, it's, it's literally another yeah. language. So, so don't feel bad if you're <laughs> confused because even people in my industry get very confused about a lot of this stuff as well, right? <laughs> okay, I'm sure that helps us to feel a lot better there. So CPP is uh, required. And mm-hmm. then we also have their different employers who will, who will give you uh, an additional benefit. Um, so for if if we work for the majority of our careers at uh, like professions or in jobs where we don't have those benefits, um, what is your suggestion for us? Uh, yeah, would you suggest that we focus more so on the RRSP since we're not getting any, con- con- like it's, it's us who are responsible for yeah. that side of things? Well, if your employer doesn't offer a pension plan or RSP, which which is becoming more and more common these days, um, you definitely want to take matters into your own hand and start saving. Um, definitely max out a tax-free savings account. Make sure it's invested according to your risk tolerance rather than just sitting in high interest savings. Whether or not you need an RSP or not, it, it really depends on your scenario, right? So if, if you're in a really high income bracket now and you know you're going to be in a lower tax bracket later, then yes, RSPs will make sense. I personally don't have any RSPs. The reason being is I, I know I'm going to be in a higher tax bracket when I retire. So for me, <laughs> it sense. And I have rental income, I have business income. I don't plan on retiring. So I'm going to continue working throughout retirement. I'm going to get uh, maximum CPP and old age security, which is probably going to be $20,000 in today's money. Um, I'm, so I'm definitely going to be in a higher tax bracket. The other issue is I don't know what the tax bracket is going to be 30, 20 years from now. You know, we have a $400 billion deficit and the way they're going to collect on it is, you know, taxation. The other common issue that I find is um, people will often ask me, you know, what do you want to, what should I invest in or what investments are hot? Um, but they may have credit card debt at like 19%, 26% or even higher sometimes, right? Uh, the reality is you've got to make money, pay taxes, and then use your after-tax money to pay back your debt. So if a debt is at 20%, the reality is, is if you're in the lowest marginal tax bracket, it's actually equivalent to 26%. So paying off your debt at 20% at the lowest marginal tax bracket is equivalent to earning 26% on an investment, guaranteed. Right? You, you show me where you can get a guaranteed rate of return of 26% on investment, then, then I'll say, you know, go ahead, go for it, right? Mm. So 
the common mistake is, you know, instead of paying down your debts at high interest rates, you're, you're trying to invest. And oftentimes people are not earning anywhere close to that interest rate on their credit card. What you can actually do is you, once you pay off your debt, if you borrow to invest, you can actually write off the interest, right? So if you've got cash on hand, pay off your debt and then simply borrow back the money and put it back in your investment account. And now you can actually write off the interest. Another common issue that people have, not I find a lot of clients don't have a power of attorney. So a power of attorney is a living will while you're alive. So you basically designate someone to make a decision for your personal property and personal health if you can't make one for yourself. Say, for instance, you're in a coma or, or you know, for whatever reason. In Ontario, if you don't have one of these documents, it's likely that the public Ontario trust will take over your decision making. You know, I have a story, an article I often share with my clients. Um, there was a spouse, her spouse, her husband went into a coma. They didn't have a power of attorney. Everything that was jointly owned, she had to go through the public Ontario trust for any decision making. It made her life a nightmare. It's a pretty pretty easy document to get. It's probably like a hundred bucks, two hundred dollars to do with a lawyer. Most lawyers are able to do will witnessing and power of attorneys virtually now, so it makes it a lot easier to do. Um, which goes into another common mistake: is people usually don't have a will, and when they do have a will, they don't necessarily set it up properly. Or, or they do it themselves. So I, I strongly encourage you do a will, do a power of attorney with a lawyer. Try to find a lawyer who specializes in estate planning. So I work with a lawyer or several lawyers who do just that because oftentimes, you know, you may get a will, a lawyer um, that does real estate mainly, and they just do family practice on the side. So you want to make sure you get somebody who specializes in it, at least use a lawyer. Wills will typically run you maybe 500 to a thousand, two thousand $2,000. It may seem like a lot, but to not have your estate properly done will cost you a lot more and possibly ruin family relationships that can't be repaired. Um, a common mistake people will make with their wills is they'll include other assets that already have beneficiaries. Naming their RSPs or life insurance policies in their wills will actually create confusion and may actually cause it to go through what's called probate or what is called now estate administration. So estate administration or probate is this process to make your estate public and validify that will and, and give it a certification. When they do that, it's a public process, meaning that anybody can see your will. I can go to courthouse. I can pay 70 to $60. I can see anybody's will. I can see who it went to, the whole thing. Okay. So putting things in your will that you don't want to be public domain is another common mistake. There are ways where you can flow things outside of a will privately, directly to your beneficiary without probate. Another issue with probate, it costs money to do. Probate in Ontario is the highest in Canada. It's roughly 1.5% of all assets that are probated. Not only that, you have lawyer fees, accounting fees, and the worst case of all is it takes a very long time to settle probate. If you got a lot of people um, coming after your estate, people who feel like you owe them a duty of care, creditors, debts, um, your estate is gonna be bound up in court. It's gonna be contested. It, it could easily take a year, two years. Sometimes I've seen several years for this stuff to settle in court. And, and if you got a family members that it, that's the executor, you know, they're usually getting the brunt of a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of compliance stuff they have to go through and they're probably you know, having you know, issues with family members if it's not set up properly. One thing you can do to avoid that is one, your will should really only be set up to flow your house. So things that you can't name on a beneficiary that you can't designate and flow outside the will should be in your will. Uh, so that's things like, you know, personal effects, jewelry, what they call residue, things that are left over after your estate is settled and your house, particularly. The other main thing you want to think about is a guardian. If you have children, who's going to be the guardian and who's going to execute the will? 
And if that ex executor doesn't want to take on the job, who's going to be the backup? What I often will recommend is if your estate is worth over half a million, you may want to consider hiring somebody to be the executor, like a trust company. Uh, we have agreements with several people that we can refer to, like BMO Trust, where they can act as executor and help you settle that and, and not you know, get caught up with family issues and family fighting. Mm -hmm. um, another issue I find is people who own corporations, they don't realize that they can set up what's called a private secondary will. So this is a will for your corporate shares. So when you pass away, your corporate shares are deemed disposed of and you have to pay what's called share capital. You have to pay a tax on those shares. So say you open a business for $1 and when you pass away, your, your business is worth a million dollars. It's got a million dollars in cash or assets in it, but that's actually taxable. You can avoid all of that by naming a private, uh, you can set up what's called a private will. It's done the same time you do a will. Uh, and it's typically done for corporate business owners who have about a million dollars or so in retained earnings. So that's a common mistake that I often see as well. Another thing is no family inventory guide. So what a family inventory guide is, is, it's basically a document that sets out where everything is, what the password for everything is, where to find everything. Because what often happens is when somebody passes, you know, nobody knows where everything is. You know, nobody knows the password to anything. So people are left scrambling and have to jump through loopholes in addition to grieving with your passing. So having a family inventory guide is very helpful. On top of that, what I highly recommend in that inventory guide or, or somewhere noted is you leave instructions for your funeral. Having to think about your funeral arrangements can be very stressful for your family. The type of flowers, the type of service, the type of casket, it can all be very traumatizing. So having that picked out beforehand can be very helpful for your family in a time when they need to cope. Mm -hmm. One common mistake that I find a lot of people are not aware of, um, and, and these have been court cases recently where um, accounts at banks or investment firms that have named beneficiaries could still be contested. So what they're recommending now is that you write a letter of intent along with the beneficiary designation at the bank or investment firm that you invested. The reason being is you want to stipulate why you want to give this money to that person. The reason why and, and stipulate that is not, you know, for any other reason, like a trust or something. Uh, there have been court cases where it has been contested, even though there was a named beneficiary and it has been overturned. Uh, a way around that is, is to hold your money with an insurance company, company or mutual company. Oftentimes you can buy investments for the same cost. Sometimes you would typically buy on, on market, but now you can name a beneficiary in the contract that cannot be contested. You can even add in a nudity settlement option. And what that essentially does is it dictates, instead of getting a lump sum of your money when you pass away, they'll get small payments for the rest of their lives or over 10 to 30 years. That's extremely useful for people who have maybe a child that has a disability, or maybe you have a child that's not very good with money as a spendthrift, or maybe a large sum of money might ruin their lives, right? Mm. Um, another common issue I find is, is real estate. A lot of people, um, including my family, um, my grandfather invested in real estate. He bought a whole bunch of properties in Alberta, put them into holding companies. And when he passed away, a lot of people don't realize CRA deems all your assets disposed of at fair market value, meaning they want a tax bill owing on all your assets, um, even though you didn't sell them. So my grandfather owned all these properties he bought in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. He passed away in 2008. We had a large tax bill from CRA. We didn't have the money to pay for it. So we were forced to sell those properties in distress in 2008. My father was executor to that estate and, and it was pretty difficult. 
you know, having to do that in 2008. Uh, try removing wallpaper from the 1900s. Oh, no. <laughs> so how my grandfather simply um, set up a, a guaranteed insurance policy the, the correct way, went through accountant to do it, went through the financial planner to do it, had it thoroughly vetted and, and you know, due diligence all done. Then, you know, we would have the money for the tax bill. We wouldn't be fighting over the estate. And we wouldn't have been in a rush to sell all these properties in 2008 in distress at a discount. Those are some of the common things that I find that, you know, are issues out there that I find people aren't really aware of or they find out, you know, when it's too late. I just want to take a moment and just like let it simmer. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you so much for your generosity and sharing all these common common mistakes that you've noticed so many of them I've never heard before so I'm just like okay really got the wheels in my mind turning and every time I have a conversation with you I'm in like complete awe because I just I feel smarter I feel like my IQ increases every time I talk to you every time I listen to you and I just through talking to you and listening to you I'm like I need to get my ish together I need to like look into more of what you're saying and just, I'm just inspired to look more into these things, but also take, find, take responsibility. And in terms of responsibility, another question that pops up is you talked about wills and you said the price range. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, I'm saving for other things right now. I was already, already thinking about that based on previous conversations we've had, but where would, when would you say it's absolutely essential versus you don't, you don't have to have one as yet. Yeah. So I would say if you have young children, you definitely want a will because you want to be able to name a guardian. If you don't, the province will decide for you and they have their own rules. Um, other reason for getting a will is, again, if you don't have a will, the province will decide how your assets are going to be distributed, not you. I mean, if you don't have any assets, you don't have a complicated estate, you, you may be able to hold off. I would say if you're married, you want to have a will because um, you likely have assets or you at least have a spouse to take care of. So... Um, when you got assets, children, family, you definitely want to think about getting a will done. Um, I, I would avoid the will kits if you can, you know, do it with a lawyer that, that is seasoned profession. Cause, cause if you don't do it properly, it'll end up costing you a lot more money and grief. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful motivator right there. These next two questions are going to be focused on home ownership. You mentioned that when you work with your clients, you put together a comprehensive financial plan. And where would you say in the list of priorities does home ownership fall? Most clients is their number one priority if you're a first time home buyer. You know, most people, you know, they don't want to rent or they see the value in homes, especially with the home prices increasing. You know, people are wanting to get in. Um, so, so what I often do is I do a cash flow. I try to eliminate debt. I used to be a mortgage broker, so I help them with their credit as well. So I understand that aspect. And what I'll actually do for them is I'll set up what's called a mock mortgage, a pretend mortgage. So we set up either a TFSA or another investment account. And whatever your mortgage payment is, say it's $2,000 all-inclusive, we'll actually use a TFSA or, or investment account as a pretend mortgage. And we'll save into it on a bi-weekly basis, maybe $1,000 bi-weekly or $2,000 a month. And what that does is it helps you, one, save for a down payment on your home. And two, it prepares you for home ownership. So you know what it feels like to have a mortgage payment. <laughs> and you can decide, do I want to own a home with that type of mortgage payment? Am I going to still be able to save for retirement and do other things? Or am I going to be house broke, only have a house right, and not be able to do it? <laughs> so, so I think that's a very valuable exercise everybody should do if you're planning to own a home. Another question I often get asked is, you know, how do I pay off my mortgage as quickly as possible? So they do accelerated weekly or accelerated biweekly. The difference between accelerated and non-accelerated 
for maybe a $300,000, $400,000 mortgage is over twelve dollars to $15,000 interest savings over your life, over the life of the mortgage, right? 25 years. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I highly recommend you increase it. It's not that much of an increase. Usually it's an extra $50 bi-weekly, $100 bi-weekly. You're prepaying your mortgage and you can always take it off if it's too much. A neat thing that um, I find myself doing and some of my clients to become debt-free is we have a special mortgage. It's a mortgage, bank account, and line of credit all in one account. And what it essentially allows you to do is transform your house into a banking system. So, so what I did is I put this mortgage on my house. I forwarded all my pay into this mortgage, which is also my bank account and line of credit. As soon as I pay down my mortgage with my paycheck, I'm not charged simple daily interest. So my mortgage only charges me simple daily interest, not compounded. And what I do is I get creative and I use a credit card to pay my bills. So that gives me an extra 60, extra 30 days where my money sits against my mortgage interest-free. And we get really creative again. I use a line of credit to pay off that credit card. And so I get 60 days. <laughs> if you keep on doing that, you surprise, you pay off your mortgage in half the time. And oftentimes you see thousands of dollars, like tens of thousands of dollars in interest by simply doing this. My mortgage interest rate is actually higher than most mortgages. is at 3%. Okay. But the interest I actually pay is a lot less than a mortgage if it was at 1.5%. Because the reality is you may have 1.5% mortgage, but majority of your payment is going towards interest payment, not your principal. So you'll find that, you know, they put limits on how much you can put into your mortgage. And most people don't prepay their mortgage because you lose your liquidity and access to that money when you do that. And people don't want to do that. Whereas my mortgage, as soon as I put it in, I can take it out right away because it's a line of credit as well as a bank account and a mortgage. So, so it's not for everybody. You know, I, I do caution people. If you're not good with debt, um, I don't recommend this, this type of vehicle because they give you a checkbook and a bank card. You can access your equity anytime. Um, this was a very useful tool because I was able to waive the financing uh, uh, requirements on purchase of my home. So oftentimes these days, you know, if you can waive the financing condition, you have a lot more negotiating power because people know you're a serious buyer. It's going to close firm deal. And because of that, I was able to knock off, you know, maybe ten to $20,000 off my purchase price because of that. Right. Um so, so yeah, this another area that people don't really realize. People are often you so focus on the interest rate rather than how much interest they actually pay. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to that because <laughs> that strategy itself. Wow, wow, yeah. And as you said, it's like it's about looking at the what you save throughout the throughout the whole life of it, as opposed to just looking at the here and now. With the yeah. My second last question for you is what would your suggestion be for somebody who has government student loans and they're in their 30s and they're still debating between home ownership versus renting and let's say they make 40k salary the question is where like where would you suggest that they prioritize because I've I've read things that suggest focus on paying off all of your all of your student loan debt first like say they have like 70k of student loan debt but it also depends are they living at home how much rent would they be paying or are they even paying rent and then other places say like just take a slower pace paying down your student loan and then um and then uh save for a down payment and do do them consecutively um yeah. but i'm curious about what your your thoughts are i mean there's no cookie cutter answer i mean each person's circumstances can be so unique so so which is why it's important to use a financial partner that knows your circumstance <laughs> 
Um, I would say it really depends, right? Keep in mind, student interest is tax deductible. Each year, you're going to get a receipt from student loans um, indicating how much interest you paid, and you can actually deduct that from your income. So, which makes the interest a lot less than what it really is. Typically, student loans are about five, six percent. So it's not really high to begin with and it's tax deductible. So if you're in a higher tax bracket, paying off your student loan may not be as much of a priority unless it's really eating in on your cash flow. You gotta find a healthy balance between paying off the student loan and also saving for a down payment on a home as well. So so again, I would use a financial planner um, and I would take advantage, you know, times where you're not working or during COVID, um, a lot of people are getting their student loan interest waived during this time. So mm-hmm. I would take advantage of that. And if, if they're waiving the interest in, you know, I wouldn't bother paying off the student loan until they start charging you interest. Mm. Yeah. Cause they're not charging you anything. So there's no rush to pay off then. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for your input there. And before wrapping up with the final question, I really want to thank you again. I'm so grateful for like your mentorship and I feel like I, struck gold um, by meeting you. And I'm so grateful that you were so willing to come on and and talk and just be so generous with your knowledge and your passion for financial strength and also biblical wisdom as well. Thank you for your time. And thank you for for sharing yourself as well. It's highly appreciated. And so the last question for you are, what are your top three recommended resources that are based on what we talked about having you know, gaining financial strength. Yeah. So um, one place that I would go to is moneywise.org. So uh, I didn't talk about this much, but I'm a certified kingdom advisor. So I took this really interesting course and went through, it was very comprehensive and went through what does the Bible talk about regarding money and stewardship? And I was surprised, you know, even though I read the book several times, there are over 2,300 verses on money and stewardship. The Bible speaks so much to the subject, yet it's very seldom talked about in churches or, or even among financial advisors, right? So MoneyWise is, is a biblically-based financial wisdom site. Um, they give you a lot of resources. They actually have an app where they, you can connect it to your bank accounts and it'll track your cash flow spending as well. So they've got articles. They've got a lot of good resources there. Um, the next place that I would go is financialplanningforcanadians.ca. So this is a site from FP Canada, the financial Certified Financial Planning Board. And what they've done is they've put together resources for Canadians seeking advice on financial planning. There's a tool there where you can look up certified financial planners as well and a whole bunch of other resources. And the final but most important one that I would recommend is the Bible. The Bible has so many verses on money and stewardship. If you want a book that's more specific on the topic, because I understand the Bible can be a very complicated (laughs) book. Um, There's one book that I found really interesting. It's called The Eternity Portfolio by Alan Gotthard. Um, He talks about the idea of taking your charitable giving as an investment and treating it as an investment as well. Because um, the Bible speaks to this. It says that it says not to lay up your treasures in earth where moth and rust and thieves can steal and corrupt. But instead, he gives you another option. He says, invest your treasures um, in heaven. And he even says things like, you know, I will return you a hundredfold in this lifetime and the next with persecutions, of course. But a hundredfold is 10,000%. You know, there's this idea that you can't take your money with you, but you can send it ahead of you. I'm not talking about buying salvation or anything like that. I'm simply talking about investing with God and God does reward those who invest with him. Another book that I would highly recommend is called The Richest Man Who Ever Lived by Stephen K. Scott. So this is a book that talks about the wisdom of Solomon. King Solomon 
would have been one of the wealthiest persons to ever have existed. His net worth in today's dollars is $2.2 trillion. <laughs> read about his kingdom. He had peace all throughout his kingdom. His economic policy was very interesting. He never had a recession. Uh, and the Bible talks about this. Ancient Israel, you couldn't lend somebody interest that was a fellow Israelite. And every seven years, if you did lend the money, you had to reset the debt. Also, on top of that, every 50 years, they have a jubilee. So they not only reset the debt every 50 years, they also price all the assets and services according to how many years are left in the 50-year jubilee. So if each year is worth a dollar, and this is the 50-year jubilee, today is $50.49 sliding down to $1. And what that does, it gives King Solomon a perfect inflation control. He doesn't have to worry about inflation, which is the primary reason why central banks exist. If you go to the Bank of Canada website, it'll say, you know, we, we exist to control inflation, okay? <laughs> uh, the other issue is, and if you study economies, every seven years, we have what's called a short-term debt cycle, where the economy goes through this, you know, um, uptick, and then it goes through a recession, and it, all the way in between. So that's every seven to 10 years. And that's per, been prolonged recently. Uh, we, we haven't had a correction up until last year when COVID hit, but that was the longest running positive market ever in history. And that's because we've had the lowest interest rates ever in history. And every 50 years, this happens. We have so low interest rates. I mean, the central bank could probably lower interest rates one, two more times if they could. And then we get into negative interest rates like Japan and Germany, where we start paying people to borrow money. So every 50 years, this happens where central banks can no, lower, no longer lower interest rates and all they can do is print money. And what often happens during this period is because interest rates are so low, housing prices, college tuition, cars, anything that's tied to how much somebody will lend you is very expensive because it's so cheap to borrow. People are buying houses based on mortgage payment, not necessarily on housing price anymore. So every 50 years, this happens because of the low interest rates, people have so much debt. We have more debt than in 2008, at least three times that amount. Okay, publicly, um, government-wise, because of COVID now, I mean, we're funding a lot of these, you know, vaccines and healthcare things down the line. So what happens is people focus on paying off their debt, corporations, individuals, and if everybody does that, which is the right thing to do, nobody's spending any money in the economy, and we end up with a, a recession or possibly a depression if the government doesn't start stepping in and start deficit spending. Uh, the case was that in Japan, uh, they went through this recently. Uh, they had a big decline. Everybody was paying off their debt. Nobody was spending any money in the economy. Fortunately, um, they had a government that did start deficit spending and started creating small projects that created employment. So it's interesting because the, the Bible speaks about this. And King Solomon, he followed this. And as a result, he didn't have these volatile recessions and these uncertainties that we have today in our economy. If you study any type of recession, it's usually tied to debt and the interest rate. And by solving those two problems or eliminating those two problems, you'll have fewer or little to no recessions, right? That way. Uh, King Solomon said this. He said, the borrower is slave to the lender. Bankers and treasury agents, they don't study counterfeits to spot counterfeits. They study real money. Our economic systems perpetuate slavery because there's no reset. People are perpetually in debt. Small nations are perpetually in debt to the IMF central banks, and they can never repay that debt, even if the interest rate is close to one or zero percent. And what often happens is that that central bank or a country usually ends up giving up its import and export rights and its resources because they can't pay that debt. So I would argue, you know, a lot of our economies, you know, aren't, aren't real economies. <laughs> They're actually, you know, funded through debt. And because of that, you, you have, you know, this volatility in the market, right?
So hopefully, you know, I think I think that will give you a better understanding of how economies work if you understand debt and that dynamic. And, and you know, the Bible has so much to say about these topics. You know, from from inheritance to leaving uh, inheritance to your children's children to um, taxes, it speaks on all those subjects, on a government level, nationwide, and also individually as well. In fact, my financial plans incorporate these um, five biblical concepts. So when I build a financial plan, uh, I build it based on spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt or bad debt, plan for emergency or contingencies, like have an emergency plan, set long-term goals and give generously. So I believe if any individual or a nation does these five things, you will fare well financially. So those are the three resources I want to share. Wow. I feel so educated right now. And I'm sure the listeners of Freedom Finders feel very educated as well. Thank you so much, Trevor. Going to be posting your contact information and what you've shared in the show notes. So please do reach out to Trevor, set up a consultation to learn more about how he can assist you. And he has more to offer in addition to what he shared on the show. Thank you again, Trevor. And thank you again, Freedom Finders for listening. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Teach Me Freedom podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it beneficial. Feel free to reach out to us at teachmefreedom2020 at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the show on your favorite platform for streaming content. Feel free to comment and leave a four or five star review if you feel so inclined. Connect with you next time.